We return this morning to the Gospel of Luke. I don't know how long it's been that we've been in Luke, but we're still there. Luke chapter 16, we'll be picking up with verse 14, and I'll be reading through verse 18 this morning. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for men and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Let's just take a moment to remind ourselves of how we arrived at this place in Luke's gospel. As we have seen now for many weeks, Jesus is on a journey. He and his disciples are traveling from northern Israel down to Jerusalem. When he arrives at Jerusalem, of course, he will be welcomed with great fanfare. In fact, we've come to refer to his arrival in the city as the triumphal entry. He will enter into the city riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Those whom Luke refers to as a whole crowd of disciples then begins to shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Of course, those disciples are not the twelve. They are a wider group. They are similar to the disciples described in John 6, who as a result of some difficult things that Jesus was teaching withdrew, we're told, and were not walking with him anymore. Not all disciples are faithful disciples. Not all disciples are true disciples. That's how John described them. And that's exactly what will happen in this final week of Jesus' life and earthly ministry as well. Jesus will spend the final week of his life there in Jerusalem, making a lot of people very angry until the crowds are no longer screaming, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, but instead they will be screaming, crucify him. That's where Jesus is going, but he's not there yet. We've got a lot of ground to cover before we arrive at the gates of Jerusalem. In fact, we'll see in a few weeks when Joe tells us about ten lepers in Luke 17, That Jesus isn't even out of northern Israel yet. You might remember that Jesus began this journey all the way back in chapter 9. Where Luke told us, 
When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. So here's Jesus all the way back in Luke chapter 9. Here we are in Luke chapter 16, and when we get to chapter 17, Jesus is still in the north of the country up around Galilee and Samaria. In fact, it's not until the end of chapter 18 that we find Jesus anywhere near Jerusalem. At that point, he's approaching Jericho and meets a blind man named Bartimaeus. And then in chapter 19, he enters into Jericho where he has an encounter with another man named Zacchaeus. And it's only then that Luke says he was near Jerusalem. Now, if you're walking from northern Israel to Jerusalem, as Jesus was doing, depending on your starting point, you're talking about a 40 to 50 mile walk. We're not really sure where he started from, however. We know that the feeding of the 5,000 took place near Bethsaida on the far northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Following that, Luke recounts Jesus' question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And then, well, first, who do the people say that I am? Then he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? To which Peter replies, of course, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew tells us that upon this, that that, that this, this conversation took place in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is quite a ways north of Bethsaida and the Sea of Galilee, that is, It's in the opposite direction from Jerusalem. Now, what happens after Peter's great confession? Then you have Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke tells us that the Transfiguration was eight days after Peter's confession. That gives us a problem. Because none of the Gospels identify the mountain upon which the Transfiguration took place. Luke, for instance, simply says that Jesus took along Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. So if eight days later they were still around Caesarea Philippi, then the mountain was most likely Mount Hermon, which was still a bit north of Caesarea Philippi. But you can cover quite a bit of ground in eight days. And some have suggested that During that time, Jesus traveled toward the south, in which case the mountain probably refers to Mount Tabor, which is between Nazareth and the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. So still in northern Israel, but not quite as far as Mount Hermon. Now, for those of you who are saying by now, as I'm sure many of you are, I didn't come to church this morning for a geography lesson. First, let me say this. I'm not sorry. Geography is a big part of the story. That's why as you read Luke's gospel, he constantly gives you geographic markers. He's always telling you where Jesus was and where he had been and where he's going. Luke thought it was important. So did the Holy Spirit, by the way. Mark is even more concerned with geography. Mark is constantly talking about where Jesus is going, constantly talking about his movements. But why? Why doesn't Luke just give us the stories? 
Here's what Jesus did. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what happened when Jesus had dinner with this guy. Here's what happened when Jesus healed that guy. I'm sure there are a number of reasons for that, but one of them surely is to place Jesus and all he said and did in a historical context. Luke was a historian, don't forget. At the very beginning of the gospel, Luke says this, as he's writing to a man named Theophilus, He says, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Now this is very important because there are a large number of documents outside of the biblical writings which purport to be gospels. You may have heard of some of them, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Peter. What is characteristic of those supposed Gospels, most of which were written centuries after the canonical Gospels, is that you don't have these kinds of historical markers. Those writings are not concerned to place their account in a historical context. They are collections of isolated, unrelated stories and sayings, but little to nothing that sets Jesus' ministry in place and time, in history. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are different. These documents documents are grounded in time and place because these accounts are not fanciful inventions. They are historical events. Our faith is not a system of morals. It is based upon what God has done in the world. From creation to the new creation, God is at work in the world, and that has most clearly been seen in the incarnation and the life and ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The last thing that Luke has been telling us about what Jesus has been doing on his way to Jerusalem had to do with words that he spoke to the disciples and to the Pharisees. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, as we saw last week, we read in verse 16, Now he was also saying to the disciples, and he began to talk about this rich man who had a a wicked manager. But the Pharisees were there, and the Pharisees were listening. And we understand that Jesus was saying what he was saying, not only for the benefit of the disciples, but also for the benefit of the Pharisees. He was talking about faithfulness regarding money. And as we continue to read, we notice that the next thing Jesus says has to do with the story of a rich man and a poor man. Beginning in verse 19, that account of a rich man and someone named Lazarus. And so this focus on material possessions, on the love of money, people who are rich and who love wealth more than they love God, is all around this passage 
that we're looking at this morning. Our passage this morning begins there in verse 14 with the Pharisees ridiculing Jesus because of what he had been teaching. And then Jesus turns the topic to the issue of the Pharisees' self-justification there in verse 15. And then he begins to speak in verses 16 and 17 about the law. And verse 18, where it seems like Jesus is just going really off the rails. He's, he, he starts talking about something that has nothing to do, it seems, with what he's just been talking about. But that's not the case. Because verse 18, where he talks about divorce is simply a continuation of his discussion of the law. One question that may be raised by all of this is what in the world is Jesus doing talking about the law here? That doesn't even seem to fit with what he's been saying to his disciples. Why suddenly this discussion of the law? After all, it makes sense for Jesus to address the Pharisees about their tendency to justify themselves. He had accused them of being lovers of money. And the Pharisees now respond by denying that accusation and by scoffing at Jesus. And as they do that, they're seeking to justify themselves. So that makes perfect sense. But why would Jesus suddenly begin to talk about the law? How does he get the law into this conversation? And the passage will make that clear. But let me just give you one reason for now. It's that the Pharisees saw themselves as the great upholders of the law. And, 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 and Jesus has been expounding the law and has been applying it to a specific area where the Pharisees were quite vulnerable. And now their response to Jesus' exposition of the law was to ridicule him and to justify themselves. And in response then, Jesus addresses the law to those who are constantly accusing him of violating the law. Isn't that what the Pharisees are always doing? Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath and they're right on top of him. You're breaking the law. The law says this, this, and this about the Sabbath. Look at what you're doing. And of course, Jesus is never actually violating the law. Jesus is violating their tradition as they've connected their tradition to the law. And so they're justifying themselves as they ridicule him. And in response, Jesus addresses the law to those who are constantly accusing him of violating the law. So he says, no, actually, I'm the one who preaches the law. And the law has been proclaimed by the prophets all the way up to John. But by your lives, you are the ones who are undermining the law. Jesus is making it clear. He's not the one who undermines the law. It's the Pharisees who undermine the law. But the law, if they understood it rightly, would actually show them something about their hearts. 
That's why he's suddenly talking about the law in this passage, and that's why you get this seemingly strange reference to adultery and divorce in verse 18, because he is illustrating through their attitudes toward money and through their bad teaching on divorce and adultery that they, in fact, fall short of the law. How does the law function in our lives? The law shows us things about ourselves that we would not otherwise see. Paul says, it's because of the law that I learned I was a coveter. It's a mirror used to show us the issues of our own hearts, and Jesus is holding up that mirror to the Pharisees. And in response to Jesus' story, the Pharisees, verse 14, were scoffing at him. And so Jesus begins to speak to them about themselves and about the law in verses 15 through 18. And in the course of doing so, he tells us that the law shows us something very important about our hearts that we need to know. And we'll see it if our eyes are open to the law. That was not the case with the Pharisees, at least not most of them. There are three things in particular that I want you to see in this passage as we briefly look at Uh, what Jesus is saying here this morning. The first is that the law shows us our idolatry. In this specific case, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees concerning money being their idol. The law will show us what we worship. Secondly, the law shows us our need, if we will let it. It shows us our need, because when it shows us what our idols are, it's also showing us that we need to be redeemed. We need to be forgiven. We need to be changed. This is not to say that idolatry is only an issue for unbelievers who need to first come to Christ. It's a problem for all of us. We all have little idols populating our hearts. And we need to identify what they are and we need to get rid of them because Jesus owns our hearts. And then finally, we need to understand and we need to see here in this passage that the law does not give a solution for our need. The law shows us our idols. It shows us our need, but it does not give us a solution for our need. Let's look at these things together. First, the law shows us our idolatry. If we, the law will reveal our idols. What is it that we are worshiping instead of God? If we look at the law, it will reveal that to us. If we look at the word of God, it will reveal that to us. This is how the spirit of God works through his word. We open his word. We read his word. He brings things to our consciousness that we would rather not be conscious of. And the spirit uses that to convict us of sin. 
and to draw us then to confession and repentance. So, What's going on with the Pharisees? Well, Jesus is making it clear that one of the Pharisees' idols was money. It's also clear that another idol of the Pharisees is what? Praise for being righteous. That was a big idol for the Pharisees. They really wanted to be thought of as deeply spiritual men. And so they loved money, and they loved the praise of people, and they loved those things, Jesus is saying, more than they loved God. And if they would have listened to the law, the law would have shown them that. The law would have shown them that they were lovers of money. They were religious figures who rejected the clear, incisive teaching of Scripture about loving God more than loving mammon. Their response to that, as Jesus was bringing the law of God right before their eyes, was to justify themselves and to scoff, to ridicule Jesus. If you look at the passage, Jesus Brings that out very clearly in a number of ways. Verse 14 says that they overvalued money. They were lovers of money rather than lovers of God. That's the first thing that Jesus says about them here in verse 14. But we also learn that they undervalue Jesus. Isn't that idolatry? That's a great definition of idolatry, isn't it? We are valuing something more than we value God. And so, not only were they lovers of money, but they also scoffed at Jesus. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Jesus being here this morning, preaching, Jesus himself, opening up the scriptures for us, telling us what the law says, and then our response being to ridicule him. You're out of your mind, Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. I know better than you do. That's what the Pharisees were saying. You're wrong about the word. You're wrong in your teaching. You're wrong about me. So they overvalued money and they undervalued Jesus. And they also, obviously, wanted to appear righteous. That's what's going on here. It's always in the background of all these accounts between Jesus and the Pharisees. It was really important for them that other people looked at them and said, Boy, there's a holy guy. This guy is super spiritual. He is godly. He is wise. Man, I really admire him. When I was in Bible college, we used to refer to People as spiritual giants. That's what they wanted people to think about themselves. Spiritual giants. They weren't looking at other people and saying, wow, isn't it great what God has done in that person's life? They are a spiritual giant and I want to be like them. They were holding themselves forth. Now if anybody comes to you and says, listen, I'm a spiritual giant, and you really need to emulate my life. Run. 
Those who are truly spiritual are also humble. Those who are truly spiritual don't look at themselves as being spiritual. Those who are truly spiritual look at themselves and say with Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. There's nothing good in me. Even though they wanted to appear righteous and receive praise from men, however, the reality is that they were not right with God in their own hearts. Look at what Jesus says to them in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. God had a different opinion of the Pharisees than they had of themselves. God knew that they were not what they tried to appear to be. And they did appear this way. If you were a first century Jew, you probably would have looked at the Pharisees and you would have said, there goes a righteous guy. These Pharisees, boy, they've got it all together. Jesus comes and Jesus sees what's going on inside. He says, God knows your hearts. Another thing that Jesus says here about the Pharisees is that They loved what God abominated. Not only did God know their hearts, he knew their hearts in regard to that which is detestable in the sight of God. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. They loved mammon. They were greedy. They were covetous. And what does Paul say about covetousness? Covetousness is idolatry. What does God say in the law? I abominate idols. See, when you read what Paul is saying, you need to come back to what Jesus has said. Because almost everything Paul says is based upon what Jesus taught. Idolatry is an abomination. Idolatry is detestable. And they had made money their idol. So here they are, wanting to look spiritual, while in, the, well, well, in their hearts they were idolaters just as much as the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And the law would have showed them this if they had opened their eyes, because the law exposes our hearts. It shows us our idols. I love what J.C. Ryle says about this passage, because this is not just their problem, it's ours. Ryle says this, The truth of this solemn saying of Jesus appears on every side of us. We have only to look around the world and mark the things on which most people set their affections to see what Jesus says proved a hundred ways. Riches, honors, rank, pleasure, these are the chief objects for which the greater part of mankind are living. Yet these are the very things which God declares to be empty, vanity, and the, and the love of them, he warns us, to beware. Praying 
and Bible reading and holy living and repentance and faith and grace and communion with God. These are things for which few people care at all. Yet these are the things which God in his word is ever urging on our attention. The disagreement between these two things is glaring, painful, and appalling. What God calls good, we call evil. And what God calls evil, we call good. But the more entirely we are of one mind with God as to what he calls good, the better we are prepared for the day of judgment. To love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to approve what God approves, this is the highest style of Christianity. The moment we find ourselves honoring anything which in the sight of God is lightly esteemed, we may be sure that there is something wrong in our souls. The Pharisees would have known that if they had opened their eyes to the law. And they should have known that. They fancied themselves teachers of the law after all. The law shows us our idolatry if we are able to see it. So what does the law do? It shows us our idolatry. And in doing so, it brings us to that second thing which Jesus teaches here. In showing us our idolatry, it shows us our need. The law would have displayed to the Pharisees their need for forgiveness of the sins of covetousness and and money-loving and idolatry and seeking reputation and affirmation from their fellow men rather than loving God. The law would have shown them all of that if they had been looking for it. If they had been desiring the law to shine that spotlight upon them, to hold up that mirror to them. But that's not what they were looking for. Jesus gives two examples here because one of the things that the Pharisees are doing as well is playing very fast and loose with the word of God. They did that quite a bit, and Jesus gives us examples. One is the love of money, and and the second one in verse 18 here is their approach to divorce and remarriage. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that in this passage, Jesus mentions only a man divorcing his wife unbiblically and remarrying or marrying a woman who is unbiblically divorced from her husband. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Didn't it ever go the other way? Is it okay for women to throw away their marriages? Throw away their husbands? Well, no. What Jesus is saying goes both ways. It's just that in the first century, that never happened. It was a man's world, ladies. (laughs) Unlike Roman law, it was very, very difficult for women to get divorces in Israel. And so the sin is primarily one of men in Israel. In Roman law, women had greater ability to get a divorce. In Israel, in Jesus' time, pretty much the only people that were able to get a divorce were men. If you had a bad man on your hands in Israel in Jesus' day, you were in trouble. There wasn't much you could do legally. 
Men, however, were allowed to divorce for all manner of things. According to one rabbi, if a man had a wife who burned his dinner, he could divorce her. Again, since this goes the other way as well, I'd be gone. I have done that on multiple occasions. According to another rabbi, if a man found a woman that was prettier than his wife, he could divorce her and marry the new model. And Jesus is very clearly criticizing the way the Pharisees had made such a big deal about how much they care for God's word while they are creating unbiblical loopholes for men to divorce their wives and remarry. He's saying you guys make a big deal about how much you care for God's law, but for your wealthy supporters, you'll find all kinds of loopholes in God's law for them, even when they are clearly breaking what God has said in his word. You are to remember the wife of your youth and be faithful to her, but you're making excuses. See, instead of searching the scripture for loopholes, the Pharisees should have looked into the scriptures to find their need. And they didn't. They should have looked into the scripture and realized, Lord, we don't measure up. We're condemned by your law and we need to be forgiven somehow, some way. But they didn't see that because their eyes weren't open. So the law shows us our idolatry. And when it shows us our idolatry, it shows us our need if our eyes are open to it. But here's one last thing that I want you to see here this morning. The law is good when it's used lawfully. That is, when it is used for the purpose it was given, which is to show us our sin and show us our need. But there is something which the law cannot do. There is something which the law was not designed to do. And that is, fulfill that need that it shows us. Once we know we have a problem, once we know that we don't measure up to the law, once we know that we fall short of God's law and that we are condemned by that law, then we're faced with another problem, aren't we? The second problem is that the law doesn't offer a solution to the first problem. The problem is our need, but the law doesn't do anything about our need. It can't do anything about our need. So... We look at verse 6, and Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. What was John's first message? It was also Jesus' first message in the gospels. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent. What's the good news of the kingdom? That the way into the kingdom is not by having kept the law perfectly. No one ever has. It's certainly not as if the Pharisees were not trying. It's not by finding loopholes in the law that gets you into the kingdom. The good news is the way into the kingdom is by God's gracious forgiveness toward those who repent. See, the law can't forgive you. 
The law can tell you of your need of forgiveness, but the law can't forgive you. Only the gospel offers that forgiveness. And so there is the law, but then there is grace. And we proclaim the law because we want the law to function as that mirror held up to people so they can, they can see their sin, they can see their need. But having seen their need, then we point them to grace. Then we point them to Christ. We point them to the gospel. We plead with them to repent. To turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus. And the sacrifice that he has made. So that we might be forgiven. So that the penalty for our sin might be paid. But not by us. Only the gospel offers that. Only Christ can forgive you. Only God can forgive you through the work of Jesus Christ. And it is repentance and faith which allows us to lay hold of that forgiveness which is in Christ. If you've come in here this morning with some idea that the way you are made right with God is by keeping his law... I want so much to dissuade you of that lie. You cannot keep the law. Just as the Pharisees could not keep the law. The law is intended to show you that you are a lawbreaker. That's its purpose. And in showing you that you are a lawbreaker, it then leads you to pursue another way. And that way is Jesus. That way is coming to the foot of the cross and putting your sins upon Christ and having him forgive. That's the gospel. The gospel is not do the best you can. The best you can do is not good enough. The gospel is not keep the law. You can't keep it. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus went to the cross and gave himself in your place to pay the penalty for sin so that as you turn from your sin and you trust in him, your sin will be forgiven, thrown as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. And then you are reconciled to God. Then you are made his child. Then the Spirit of God comes to indwell you. Then you are His forever. This is the gospel. Give up your law keeping. Just trust in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would make this truth a reality in the lives of your people today. We pray, Father, that as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, that these things might be in our minds as we remember what Christ has done. For Jesus' sake and for ours. Amen.